Good evening. I'm Lenore Marshall. I'm going to speak to you tonight about the writer as activist. George Bernard Shaw said, if you saw the scene in a poet, you'd run. Maybe. If you saw the scene in a poet or a novelist or lots of people, maybe you'd run. There's plenty in today's scene to cause conflict. I'm going to begin by reading a poem that appears in my new book, Latest Will, which was published by Norton. And later I'll tell you why I choose this poem to read, why it's relevant to the subject I'd like to discuss, which is the double life, or the writer's divided life, or the divided writer's life, or the writer as activist. It's easier to give titles than to live it. At any rate, this is one of the poems in Latest Will, which came out in 1969, some months ago. I should add that Norton published Latest Will in paperback as well as in hardcover. Thank heaven for paperbacks, which have made books more accessible. That's one of the good things about our age. This poem was written after the blackout, which you remember struck New York and the East a few years ago. That was its inception, the power failure, the failure of a bit of technology, the false gods of machinery and materialism. To me, the implication of that night of darkness and of this poem goes beyond the blackout to the human being within the whole complex, vulnerable machinery in which we live the individual's responsibility in it. Well, here's the poem, entitled, Blackout of the Dream. Blackout of the Dream. Somebody is the murderer, not fate. We who'd said Megalopolis as though petting a tame tiger waited for the foolproof to fail when the machinery came to a halt. The cause was a mystery. This is the death of the American dream. Where has it gone? Who has seen it, stainless and bright, reigning over millions? In one half hour, maybe, we said, all will be well, we may hope. Let us hope. We were reduced to hope. Somebody is the murderer, towers of light. Somebody who built you forgot the sky, topping marvels to outwit any night infallibly, while we flock for an open field, press for a place where a brook is, a cave is, dark as a cemetery. Somebody is the murderer, or somebody is the savior not fate. Somebody. Things aren't fated. Today, more than ever, we have to do something about the world around us. We have to face up to it, to save it, to improve it, to make ourselves responsible for it. We have to remember that individuals matter. The writer is concerned with individuals. He, above all, should have values to preserve, a world to create, and to save. Yet, the writer in the past has usually led a secluded life, 
by his nature and by necessity, away from the thick of things. I'm not talking of the journalist or sociologist, that kind of writer. I speak of the poet and novelist. He or she, since I'm a she, but we'll say he to shorten it, has to concentrate within his imagination, dig into himself. Usually he avoids the fray, but today things are different for everybody. Today the world has perhaps 10 years left, experts tell us, to clean our environment, to prevent a world war, to control the nuclear threat that may end in Holocaust. There's so much to be done, and conditions have imposed a deadline on us. This is the time to develop a sense of responsibility, of participation. Somebody is, somebody is the murderer or savior as part of a process in which he takes part or which he resists or changes. It's not the vacuum of fate that does it. Somebody says a war, for instance, begin or end. Some order makes a difference. Escalate or de-escalate, negotiate. For people who believe in something, in some cause, some idea that may affect others, there's the obligation to act. They can act. Each can find for himself some way of acting. I'm coming, coming to poets, to writers in a minute. But the days are shorter now. Communications are quicker. The extremists get most of the attention and they often hurt a cause and lack a thought out program. That puts an added responsibility on those who act not simply from emotion, from anger and despair, understandable as that may be in some cases. It puts an added responsibility on those who are willing to plan patiently, to look ahead, to create, and to construct. And poets aren't immune from this any more than plumbers or politicians or policemen. Novelists aren't immune, especially as, if they're any good at all, they have to feel things pretty deeply. They don't wear halos. They're intensely part of the world. In my case, I'm a writer and I'm what they used to call a pacifist. Now, the word doesn't fit. You seldom hear of pacifists, or everybody claims to be one. Peacenik does better. So what about the poet as Peacenik? How does he manage? Sometimes, simply through his writing, he expresses himself for himself and his small audience. Sometimes through joining movements, through public commitment of participation, the added dimension of group action. I write books, novels, poetry, stories. And I also work against the arms race and nuclear disaster because I love life. I love the children in it, and trees, and brooks. I think of a particular brook in a place that I go to very often, the lovely sound of it, which I hope will go on forever. And oceans, I love oceans and beaches and some very fine people and the great potential of the human race. Sometimes there's an agonizing conflict. The writer hasn't all the time he needs, not ever, or the tranquility for his work. 
He may have to make great sacrifices in his career, write fewer books than he otherwise might have. He wakes up at 3 a.m. in a panic about the book he's writing. He wants to stop all this do-gooding talk that he's having, talk maybe with scientists about shafts that have been dug 6,000 feet deep in Alaska for nuclear tests to test ABM weapons. He wants instead to go back to the heroine of his book, perhaps, that he's writing, to, to that heroine and how she solved her problems. When I wrote my longest, and I believe best novel, The Hill is Level, which was published by Random House, it took me 10 years. During that time, I was co-founder of the National Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy, now known as SANE, and I helped launch it. One wonders sometimes who one is. One may find, one may feel torn limb from limb between the inner and outer lives, but one can't help it. If one believes passionately in a thing, one has to commit oneself to it. We hear about searching for our identity these days, identity crises. Perhaps we now have to have more than one identity. Or perhaps the different sides really do compose into one. Who are we really, we ask. We'd like to pursue a direction that is simple and clear and to arrive at our life's work. But our idea of our selfhood and the facts of it are complex. Another poem that appears in Latest Will says some of this. The poem is called Invented a Person. This is one that's been reprinted a number of times, Invented a Person. Invented a person named I, out of use and disuse, and the antique child who watched the new moon in the sky, and a foot in the antique grave. Out of faces cast off by mirrors, eyeless under light, out of love and excuse, in need, on the screen of a dream, the target of blow, the chosen of healing and love, a marvel of fate, most trapped like the wind in a trap, sweeping forward and out, most curbed like the sea, storming breakwater walls to the bay like a bird that must break for the sky through all space, winging straight, longed to be. Invented a person named I with a place of its own, a certain thing to be done, and in fear for that one. With a place of its own, a certain thing to be done, and in fear for that one. We all want some security in life to do our own thing, but we have to work with other people too. I believe the individual can make himself felt. Sometimes he can do something, and so he has to try, because there's very much that needs to be done. Maybe the individual has one chance in ten, one in a hundred of succeeding. He gambles on that one chance if he believes passionately in a thing. What about the writer, the poet, and novelist? Sane was born in my living room in 1957. That's what I think of when I talk about practical matters of the poet as peacenik, or the writer's divided life, or the divided writer's life, or the writer as activist. Sane started really through a conversation with a friend who was as concerned as I at that time about the madness of the arms race. 
and the growing possibility of the destruction of our civilization. At that time, the United States was testing nuclear bombs in the Pacific, and we laymen were beginning to hear about fallout. And the term strontium-90, iodine-131, radioactive poisons that could mean death. I said accidentally enough, should we, shouldn't we stop? Shouldn't we do something about stopping this? The result of that evening was a meeting of a few more friends, about 30 of us, several weeks later, and the formation of SANE, small at first, but soon growing large, taking the lead in trying to halt nuclear bomb tests. Other organizations joined us, and this resulted several years later in the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Today I'm working to try to halt underground tests. These tests may cause as great damage as those in the atmosphere if they continue to become larger and more frequent. They may cause earthquakes, which may trigger other earthquakes. Catastrophes of unknown dimensions may occur. Huge tidal waves may be set off. Soil, air, water are polluted by released radioactivity, wildlife destroyed, fish contaminated, international tensions are further provoked. I wish I could persuade some of you to protest this underground nuclear threat, to inquire about the tests and inform yourselves. Senator Mike Gravel of Alaska has introduced a resolution in the Senate for an impartial commission to review what the Atomic Energy Commission is doing. Congress must be persuaded to support Senator Gravel's resolution. Ultimately, we should revise the test ban treaty so that it includes a ban on underground tests, too. People always think the doomsday won't really happen. It's too far off to bother about. They can't believe it may be around the corner. This is dangerous complacency. They can send letters to their senators, to the newspapers. They can see their congressmen. They can try to convince their neighbors. They can stand up in public. They can join and strengthen organizations. I did a bit of light verse on this subject once. Grim light verse or satire. It also is in latest will. It's called dialogue and light verse. Did you hear that explosion? It sounds like war. Don't be ridiculous. Not today. Tomorrow, conceivably. Not today. Nobody's ready, so not today. Next week would be handier than today. You're such an alarmist about today. Something has deafened me. What did you say? It's a minute to midnight. It wasn't today. Actually, there are plenty of precedents for poets and novelists who've played an active role in the politics of their world. There was Milton connected with Cromwell and the revolution against King Charles, author of Areopagitica, one of the noblest defenses of the printed word. There was Byron who fought for freedom in Greece and died there. There was Shelley, Swift, a great patriot, Emerson, an ardent abolitionist, Dickens who helped reform schools and prisons, Tolstoy who wrote the greatest book about war, they all took part in the issues of their day. And in our day, Norman Mailer ran for mayor of New York. Andre Malraux was a minister in France. The difference between the period in which we found it sane and now, between yesterday and today, is that there was very little support for a peace movement then. We were considered kooks, cranks, nuts, just one step above commies because they said if you believed in peace, that could help the enemy. So you couldn't believe in peace, apparently. At any rate, when I asked some of my writer friends to join SANE, or in some way to speak out against the arms race, they would say to me, your job is to write your books. You shouldn't be engaged in these activities. Start your new novel. Of course, it was just what I was doing and wanted to do all the time. 
Now there are people everywhere who agree with the peace movement. Then there was very little to read on the subject. Now there's a large literature. Now there's an enormous literature, and people inform themselves about the issues. Then the youth generation was silent. Now there's a youth generation that leads. And the best of them, not all by any means, but the best of them, are the best young people that we've ever had. I think I'll end by reading a couple of other poems. Um, wish I could read the title poem, Latest Will, from my new book, but it hasn't anything to do with the subject of this discussion, so instead I think I'll read a couple that may be more relevant, which are also in Latest Will. First, I'd like, though, to quote a line from Montaigne, who said, every man carries within himself the entire human condition. Now, here's a poem called Shadow and Answer. What color is the shadow of a tree on afternoon's cut hayfield, green on yellow, deep over shallow? What is the sound of quiet bearing meadow, ghost branch, dapple? Let the world go on. Let summer come forever, even for one, for me or nobody, for wrens. Nobody intended to kill civilization, only to wound it. Nobody said, thou shalt not wound. It was already wounded. The floods were tears, the rains were always blood. In cave, Golgotha, and in Hiroshima, from claw and cross and pyre and crumb and love, anywhere, anytime. Look, the wounds have not been stanched. Look, anywhere, anytime. What color is the shadow of a tree? What wren sings summer on a sunlit bough? What flood moves in the veins? What blood is love? There's another poem which is called Gogglehead. Gogglehead is really my man from Mars. Gogglehead is my science fiction poem. It started one winter morning when I pulled up my shade and saw in the house across the way that a rag had been caught in a chimney, and it was flapping in the winds. The next morning when I looked, it was still there. It was flapping, and all that winter, it stayed, this rag caught in the chimney, and after a while, it seemed to be gesturing to me. I imagined it as some creature that was making signs to me, and I named it Gogglehead. So here's the poem. I thought it was looking at our world, you see. It was seeing seeing us up there. The poem is called Gogglehead. I was the first to see the gogglehead alight on a roof in shelter of chimney smoke. It was bagged in sacking and shaking a hidden shape in shocked surveil as if to say, so this is the world. Materialized, perched athwart housetop, it was there. Flapping to winds, wintry across from my window, shrouded in call that concealed what it was or no. Without body, it was all head. The head had brought it from its where. Bulged by a bishop's mitre or rhinoceros bone, or the pronged crown of a star gone lost and blind, 
patch of test tube or lightning or escape of a small boy's mind, it might be the first of legions, it might be alone. No angel choirs rang, it hung with never a clue, huddling over stony street wall and inverted legged creatures shifting this way and that in the pit confronted my alien features. Poor gogglehead, I know what you see. I too. One other bit of light verse in latest will. <laughs> I don't write light verse usually. I guess the other one that I read to you and this one are the only ones in the book, but perhaps this one would be applicable to the ABM controversy. This one is called Safe. I was happy I could whistle till he got his anti-missile. I felt better when I read anti-anties were ahead. Now I'm safe again, but can't he make an anti-anti-anti?